Hi everyone and welcome back to the Bliss Bakery where you'll get your wholesome slice of life. I'm Rachel and I'm Jenny. Today's guest is Jenny Chu. You may have seen her before on LinkedIn. I've known Jenny for a long time now and she's been on this rocket ship career path from us interning together at Atlassian to then zooming into becoming a head of product at Eucalyptus. Jenny has always been someone I've looked up to a lot in my career trajectory. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So excited to be here. I'm sorry. There's like background barking. It's so annoying. That's okay. It's more annoying for you. (laughs) How do I edit this out later? Um, But okay, let's start with, first of all, a throwback because Whenever I have new guests on, I like to do a little bit of something that helps intro themselves. Um, So do you recall how we first met? Yeah, we actually met way before uni. Um, Actually, I was at uni. I think you were still in high school uh, when we were working at Westfield. Maya. Yeah. Maya, you were working at Maya and I was doing Christmas casual work for like watches. So I was like selling watches for people. Um, yeah, we met through that, which is wild. And then yeah. a few years later, we just randomly met each other through uni, like not really talking between yeah. those years. And I was like, oh my God, Rachel, we actually worked together during Christmas. And I remember we were just like, cause it was pretty empty. So we were just like, uh, chat and just get to know each other. So it's yeah. crazy world. And I was just, I had no expertise in watches or accessories. I was just put in that section and you were the fossil expert. Yeah. And so every time someone came and asked me for a watch recommendation, I'd be like, Jenny. Yeah. I didn't really know much about watches except what they told us to say. So, but it was really, yeah, it was really um, coincidental because it seems like our, our career paths have bumped into each other a lot from the beginning. From the Christmas casual (laughs) and shop assistant. I literally, I did that Christmas casual job. And then when I left Maya, I was like, oh, I'll probably never see these people again. And then go to uni and I saw you. Yeah, I know. Not planned at all. Um, So the topic that I want to dive into with Jenny today, though, is especially close to my heart. Um, This episode is titled Ego is the Enemy. And that is the actual title of a book that Jenny recommended I read a couple of years ago. And it honestly changed my life. (laughs) Um, The book is written by Ryan Holiday. I I feel like if I think back to it, I don't remember exactly like what it was about, but there's just messages or there's this way that it makes you feel and bits and pieces that stand out as mantras that I use in my day-to-day. So the book is about the role of ego in your life and how as we go through life, we often have to battle with this desire to be somebody or do something. Um, Be somebody meaning focus your time on getting recognized and do something meaning optimizing your life to doing what you enjoy or you're passionate about without concentrating as much on whether other people think you're doing amazing or not for it. So often these two things we find are not achieved at the same time. And I wanted to reflect with you on this today Mm. Uh, because you're someone who interestingly has traveled down both of these paths at an early uh, point Mm. in your life so far. So firstly, let's just start by sharing your journey so far from uni to your career, because it's been a very interesting journey. Yeah. So actually when I first, um, and maybe when I was actually 
doing Christmas casual work. I originally wanted to become an optometrist, um, mostly because my parents said it was a great job for women, especially if you get pregnant and if you're a mother, you can do like part-time work. It's really high paying. Um, I remember during HSC, I looked up what's the highest paying grad job. Um, an optometrist was one of them. And I also wanted to like help people. Um, so I didn't actually get into optometry uh, originally. So I decided to do vision science and then bridge into optometry through that. I actually failed my first year um, doing that course. It was a very challenging course and it was also very competitive. And I think through that, it was also one of my first big failures of my life. And I sort of just like spiraled. I was like, oh, I can't become an optometrist. Did I really want to become an optometrist really? Um, and then I essentially changed, decided to take the leap without um, telling my parents um, the scariest thing I've ever done mm -hmm. into design. Because as a kid, if I think about what I really, really wanted to do, you know, in year six, what you dreamed of doing, it would actually be in the area of art and design. I ended up doing a degree in commerce and design. Commerce because it was like a backup plan. I didn't want to go full design because my parents may kill me. So <laughs> I, and I was also afraid of like what it would look, be like to be a designer because there's this concept of like the starving artist, right? So yeah, it's a hard, it's, it feels like almost the hardest kind of journey to mm. communicate to your parents, especially Asian parents, because you're essentially going from healthcare into design. Exactly. The worst nightmare. Like, <laughs> like exactly. Did one year design. Through that, I did a lot of internships because, again, I was scared to become a starving artist. So I was like, I need experience now. I got into the world of startups and tech, and I actually ended up graduating with um, information systems, which was, which was most aligned with like startup and technology. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how I met Rachel because you were doing um, a Bachelor of Information Systems as well. So uh, yeah, and then ever since then, I, I did a few internships either in UX design. I actually wanted to be a UX designer. Mm -hmm. I was applying for internships at Alassian. I applied for the product design one and the product management one. Funny thing is, is I got the product management one just because I had so much random startup experience by then. Um, and I haven't really looked back. I entered product management really randomly, did a few years at Alassian. And then, um, as Rachel said, I joined Eucalyptus, a very early stage startup as the first product hire and like employee number 15. Um, and yeah, I'm still there. Yeah. I just kind of look back and I think about how our, our journeys have been so aligned because when we first interned at Atlassian, we were the we were the only two yeah. product management interns there that summer. Yeah, it, it is interesting. You are a very I know you you have been a very creative, very design oriented person. And so, why did you then choose to go down the path of PM rather than design? Was it just because of that that internship? I think partly, like I did like design, um, and I still really love the creative process and feeling hands-on of building something. That's why I love design. But if you were to do design in an act, like in a company, oftentimes a lot of your, you don't really get the creative freedom that you think you want. And also like that you actually do want. Um, you have to deal with a lot of stakeholders, a lot of collaboration. Um, oftentimes you're taking in feedback and sometimes the thing that you produce is more of a result of like many different people giving you feedback. At the same time, I also didn't want to be on the tours and like on Figma 24-7. I really love the variety of product management work. Like I could have an impact on 
the design, but I could also look into data. I could also look into like a new industry. I really loved um, the variety and the breadth that PM gave me. Yeah, I still love design. Career-wise, it just wasn't what I think I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes when you have something you're very passionate about in doing in your own time, mm. when you turn that into work, you feel less excited yeah, about it. definitely. It's the same as, I guess, for content creators when they love just making YouTube videos or whatever it is, and then it becomes their job and they have the stress and the pressure of needing to pay for their life yep. with it, that it becomes just more like work and less exciting to do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I think like, oh, and I guess like next year as well, I'm taking a career break as well. So I also want to revisit that hypothesis of whether I would or not would not enjoy design so I'm keen to get back into it and try it again that's awesome yeah you're gonna find yourself next year I will <laughs> or, or, or I'll get more lost yeah <laughs> and that's okay that's okay <laughs> um how did you end up telling your parents when you made that move from optom into commerce design I actually did it for oh, six to twelve months um Essentially, I just logged in probably before the deadline. I think there was a deadline on UAC or something to change degrees using your ATAR still. Mm -hmm. um, and that way you didn't have to go through your, your grades because my grades was depressing in my first year. And I just paid for it myself. And I didn't tell them for like six to 12 months. And I think I just came up randomly. I, I really want to tell them when they were busy so that it wasn't like a full focused conversation. I would not tell them at the dinner table because then you know, we have to finish dinner while yeah. talking about this. And I just remember the reaction was like, oh, yeah, uh, like, they were just like so disappointed. They're like, oh, why would you, you were so smart. Why would you like throw your life away oh, is no. kind of the feeling that I got. And I felt like a true disappointment to my parents at that point. Cause I think up until then they still had hope in me. Um, Cause they always thought I'd be like the smartest out of my siblings, which was not true, at least not in the like ATAR sense. I remember they were just like so disappointed in me and it wasn't, and that disappointment sort of still stayed until I got into Alassian when they could finally search up Alassian on WeChat because <laughs> I was in startups until then. So they never could search it up and they could be like, oh, wow, the founders bought one of the most expensive houses. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to the point of like to be something, like I feel like a lot of Asian parents really value these like um, materialistic ways of measuring whether you know their daughter is doing something good or bad and so the fact that Alassian was a big name <laughs> the founders were rich yes <laughs> um, you could see their their houses on the Daily Telegraph or like Sydney Morning Herald was so validating for them so yeah I feel like I got some brownie points back again but yeah <laughs> I feel that because I had a similar experience when I moved to Atlassian mm. because McKinsey is just old school. Everyone knows it, like Asian parents all know it. Um, and so when I made the move to Atlassian initially, since tech is in a newer space, my parents didn't like they hadn't heard about Atlassian mm. yet until they had properly searched it up. And it definitely did help that the founders were, you know, in the top five richest in Australia kind of thing. And then they were like, oh yeah, this is a really good company. And then they could like start telling their friends that my daughter works at this really top Australian tech company kind exactly. of thing. But before that, they were like, oh, I don't know if you're making the right decision moving from, you know, a really well-known consulting firm to like this place I haven't even heard of exactly, before. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, definitely plays into the whole, 
it's not just your ego, but you feel like you're impacting your family yeah, ego. Yeah, definitely. Like the fact that, you know, when they talk to other parents, one of the biggest topics is like, you know, what my daughter's ATAR was or, you know, my, my, my daughter's salary and yeah. all of those sort of things. Um, like every time I get promoted or like my partner gets promoted, like literally yesterday, Kwan got promoted. Yay. Yay. Um, but the first thing my mom said was like, congrats, what's your salary now? <laughs> and, you know, it is the way it is. And I think it's just a different generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, because we were touching on that, the whole topic of ego is the enemy here, what were your key takeaways when you read the book? Yeah. It's funny because in preparation for this podcast, I was also trying to remember my key takeaways. And to your <laughs> point, I don't really remember like the specific examples, but I do remember, you know, the quote, do you want to be someone or do you want to do something? And I remember reading it. It was also one of the most life-changing books of my life. Um, I think a few key things. I was reading it when I was pretty, you know, burnt out at Alassian. Um, especially I was confused why I was burnt out at this you know, seemingly amazing company. You know, the founders are rich, you know, I'm getting paid well. It made no sense to me that I was burnt out and just not having a good time because everything on paper was great. I was promoted, I was getting paid well, my mentors and managers were happy with my progress but for yeah. some reason I just didn't feel fulfilled and for reference like you were also one of the fastest growing PMs yeah like we went to um was it a grad intro yeah. or something grad orientation and then she was on the panel for mm. the grad intro and they introduced us like the supercharged growth trajectory PM yeah <laughs> so yeah you were doing really well it's interesting though because like just my few years before that, I felt like the biggest failure. I would say like in, you know, when you peak in year six, you're like number one ducks of school. I went to selective school. I didn't try. So I felt like a failure there. I didn't really beat my brother's ATAR, which was very important in my family. And then all of a sudden I was at Atlassian and I thought all of those things that my parents used to value, I should value too, like prestige, fast growth, all of those kind of things. And then I read this book. Um, I actually read this book ages ago, but it was it's not for books usually. It's not until you're in the right moment of life where you actually get the values. So I reread this book just because I had it. And a few key takeaways was, I was like, do I really need this book? I don't think ego is the problem. But one of the few takeaways was actually like, wow, after reading the book, I actually have so much ego. Maybe also partly because of, you know, the structures of a corporate where, you know, they rate your performance and they always give you feedback. Like you have so much external validation. I remember just reading that book and be like, I actually have so much ego. And it's not ego in the sense that like I'm arrogant or I might look down on people or anything like that. But it was the fact that I would be upset if someone didn't give me validation. And that was the biggest realization that, wow, I have a lot of ego, especially because all of a sudden I got used to being good at my job and getting this validation from everywhere, everyone around me. And if I didn't have that, I just felt like I wasn't doing well. But what the book says is like, ego is about what you believe your self-worth is, right? And so all of a sudden I believe that I deserve good feedback. Mm -hmm. And if I wasn't getting it, I felt like I was not good. But if you think about it objectively, most people, like an average person, should be getting, you know, negative and, you know, 
positive feedback, but I was just so hooked on this like positive feedback loop. And then that book made me realize at the end of it, well, who am I to always want to like please other people? So I think that helped a lot. And the other thing was also to be someone or to do something mm. um, because I was so attached to, you know, the fact that I was like the supercharged mm. um, APM. I felt like I have to p- keep getting better and like maintain that. Yeah. But that was trying to be someone. I actually asked myself, what am I doing here at Alassian? I couldn't really answer that. It wasn't anything I ever thought about because I was so focused on still maintaining this bar that I can see people having for me. And that was mind blowing because I was like, okay, what do I actually want to do with my life? Is it to be here and solve this kind of problem that I was solving at Alassian? Probably not. Um, and so that made me actually kickstart, you know, trying a new team and then eventually leaving Alassian to be proud of doing something. Yeah. So it was a pretty life-changing book for myself as well. Yeah. And everything you just said there, I totally relate to because I also thrive off external validation. Like I love it. It's so easy to (laughs) Every time you get a compliment or something positive, it's like, oh yes, yes, I'm motivated to keep going. Yeah. And it's gotten to a point for me where sometimes, like I struggle with this so much. If I get criticism, I crumble. Yeah. (laughs) Especially in day-to-day in Oztag. I play badly in the first few minutes of the game. Mm. I put my head down or Lucas Mm. says, oh, you should have made that tag or whatever it is. And then I just play terrible for the rest of the game because I just keep crumbling. And part of it is this whole feeling of, I care so much about what other people are thinking and what they're saying about me and not enough about how I am feeling towards myself. I let that dictate how I feel about Mm. myself. It's funny you mentioned Oztag because I started playing badminton a couple of years ago and badminton and sport has taught me on a different level how important your mental ability to be resilient to those kind of things are. Like, for example, I also play with my partner, my partner Quad, and when he, whenever I like screw up a shot, I look at him and I can see disdain in his eyes, and then I just feel sad, yes. and I just don't feel like I'm like, what's the point of playing anyway if I'm bad anyway? But one of the biggest things that helped me improve my badminton was actually like, that shot wasn't good. I'm just gonna try focus on the next shot. But it's a huge mental challenge to remove that, right? But yeah, I totally agree. Like if you just focus on, and part of the book was saying like, hey, just focus on the effort and focus on the work. And that could apply for your job, you know, a sport that you love or like a hobby that you love, like enjoy the process and not necessarily the outcome. Like even if you lose that point, hopefully you're proud of how you played. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think um, part of this feeling of being an achiever is not only in the instilled in the Asian culture, but also it's driven by the bubble that you are in when you're in uni mm. and growing up because we're in these kind of contained structures and uni is this kind of place where it's really obvious when you achieve or you do well because you either enter competitions like case competitions or hackathons and you win prizes so you can say you know I came first in this thing or you get good grades whatever it is your achievement is very visible Mm. and so I found that actually when you go into work where that then starts to translate is either you're getting a promo or you get a shout out but 
because work is just ongoing forever, there's never really, they don't really grade you. You don't share, like, this was my performance mm. for the year to other people. Um, and so there's less opportunities, it feels like, to be someone mm. unless you actively start putting yourself out there. And that's super tiring and consumes up so much of your time. And so I just find that kind of transition, I found it difficult, to be mm. honest. Like, I felt like in the last three years, I've been doing well at my job, but, you know, sometimes you, you're putting, you're writing your resume or you're updating it and you have that achievement section and it's like, wait, did I achieve anything though in work? Yeah. You can't be like first place in yeah. this competition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I totally feel that. And I think it just gets worse as you get more senior, like the type of recognition or sense of achievement that you get is usually your boss saying that you're doing well, but like, what if you don't have a boss that does that? right? I know as a manager, I could be better at giving compliments. So imagine if you had me as a manager <laughs> and when you get more senior, like you get less and less validation. If anything, you get more problems. And so if your self-worth is attached to how many times this person said I did a great job, which my self-worth was, and sometimes still is, um, it's just really hard to find joy every day at work. But I think Part of the book and also, I guess, like other other um, like philosophies, like in Buddhism, I think if you think about, hey, in like 10 years, what am I proud to say I have done? Like, for example, for eucalyptus, actually before eucalyptus, I always wanted to make an impact on a lot of people, a lot of like everyday people, not necessarily businesses. So I do feel really proud that I was able to bring like this new kind of telehealth into the world. And I would be proud to say like to my children in the future, I'm like, hey, I actually helped pioneer this thing that is now super accessible in Australia. So I think it's hard, but like trying to find achievements um, that you're intrinsically proud of, like, and that's very dependent on the individual, right? The hard thing is on LinkedIn and Oh, in the yeah. professional world, everyone values like how fast did you get promoted? Yeah. Uh, what your title is. But I don't think in the future you'll say like, oh, I managed to do this in 10 years. You'll probably like, you will probably want to say like, hey, I actually built this thing from scratch and it helped a lot of people. And that's really subjective, right? Like not, someone might not think what I've done is actually an achievement in their end. They might value um, finance, for example, something that I don't really care about very much. But some people love finance and they find it so interesting. And being able to work in blockchain technologies and work on that is super impactful for them. Mm. The whole LinkedIn culture is very, it's very toxic, I think, because, you know, all of these topics, I'm like, I haven't overcome them yet. I still feel it day to day where I go on LinkedIn and I see someone's been promoted or mm. they won this award, like 30 under 30 or whatever it is. And I'm like, oh man, I want to be like that. And you see, you see their LinkedIn titles and it's all just like X Facebook, X Google at YC next year, whatever it is. And it really impacts you as a person as well. And I think that everyone gets used to this idea of posting their work achievements on LinkedIn and when other people consume them, it's like the more that you post there, the more it seems like you're doing things and you're being successful. So recently I actually had a comment on one of my YouTube videos from someone I didn't even really know. Like I didn't know them that well, probably met them once way back. And they basically were saying, 
you know, what happened to the successful, ambitious Rachel that we all knew from uni. It seems like you, you don't really have that ambition anymore and you're, you're just happy in your role as a product manager or whatever in your company, not doing more. That's and terrible. I, yeah. And I was like, firstly, it's really hard. Like I could be doing really successful at work and just doing my job. It doesn't mean that I'm not being successful, right? Yeah, because I think that's the thing. Success is so subjective to people. Like for that person, they probably think success is like senior titles and all that kind of stuff. But I see you as very successful because you get to do so many things that you love outside of work while achieving so much at work. Like you get to learn you're a content creator, you're starting a podcast, like success is so subjective. And oh, I'm sorry you had that comment. That's so yeah. discouraging. It was like, a moment for me where I was like, oh, should I be oh, doing no. more? Should I be starting my own company? No, no, not, <laughs> not. I mean, now you know that person's probably not worth, <laughs> not worth you getting the validation from. Yeah. But it's hard though. Like ego is in everything, right? Mm. Like I can't say that I don't think anyone in this world, unless like you're super like a monk or something is say like can say that they're free from ego. Like it's very easy to see someone on LinkedIn getting promoted and they have like hundreds of comments. You can see people being super successful. You know, they have like beautiful homes and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's really easy to like fall under that trap. But I think the cool thing about you as well is that at least you're aware of this concept of ego and you can be like, why am I upset about that? And then you can be like, is it my ego talking or is it actually something that I value and I want? And you can make that decision as well. So I think, you know, at least, at least awareness is the first step to all of this. It is definitely a good reminder to always be like, do I want this because I want it? Or do I want it because I want other people to think positively of me? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's also very tough as well if you're someone that has been known to be that person. And and you mentioned that before, like the more that you are known as a very fast growing APM and the more you get known for that, you feel like you have to keep Mm. at that rate of growth and Mm. it just becomes extremely unsustainable and then you burn out. Let me tell you about the story of how I felt so free. So after I let Alas- left Alassian, everyone's like, why did you leave Alassian? You were doing so well. I left to this like no name company, Eucalyptus, right? It was like series A. Um, I was the first product person. I took a pay cut as well. And no one was messaging me on LinkedIn. No one cared about what I did. And I felt so free. I actually felt like, wow, I can actually focus on the work. I'm intrinsically happy because I don't have anyone telling me that I'm awesome or like I'm doing well no one's inviting me to talks anymore Adelassian everyone invited me to talks it's, it's funny because actually like you you know you can think on the flip side like oh I wish people invited me to mm. talks and all that kind of stuff but I actually for the first time in a long time I felt so free I felt so focused on my work and then you know eucalyptus got big it, everyone's like, wow, Jodie, you're the head of product of Eucalyptus. And I'm like, where were you when, <laughs> when, when you know, we were small? And it, it actually wasn't a big thing. And all of a sudden, that same thing that I felt at Alassian, that pressure came back again. Oh. People asked me for talks again. People were asking me for coffees. I got so overwhelmed by all of these things because, yeah, it's just it's just overwhelming. And then I'm like, oh, gosh, like I need to become like you know, a CPO next because it would look awkward on my LinkedIn. And all of those thoughts naturally came in. Mm. So it's not easy when you're in that kind of position. And I remember 
a big battle with my ego was I was originally the head of product at Eucalyptus, mostly because I was like the first product person and the CEO gave me a chance to become the head of product. And I remember six months later, I just decided to step down because I, part of it might be because I didn't really like, I wasn't really liking the job itself, but a big part, the big, one of the biggest challenge was like removing that title away. And you could actually see after I removed that title, people stopped messaging me as well. Really? Yeah, yes. But that shows you like how people just judge you based on title. your title and what they think that company is. Like my worth was only because Eucalyptus is famous. Mm. Um, no one really knows me and they just associate me with this company um, thinking I am successful in their terms. So I just thought it was just a really interesting experience and I don't know. There is some nice freeing of being a nobody. <laughs> it's very freeing. No, that is really interesting because, yeah, you you became this head of product of Eucalyptus became known as one of the top growing startups yeah. in Australia. And I think a lot of people have heard of it now and coming out of uni, they want to work there. And so with you being in this position that is, you know, head of a product, that's, that's a huge role there. And you eventually did make the decision to not be head of product anymore. So can you tell us a little bit about like that decision as well mm. in terms of when you were making it, what was going through your head? Yeah, good question. When Tim, the CEO, told me that I was going to be the head of product, my first gut reaction was like, oh, I don't know. Because I think the head of products I used to work with, a lot of them were um, like stakeholders. They were mostly, they weren't really doing product work, which was what I knew I loved and I really enjoyed. But I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity. He believes in me. I should try it anyway. So I, I tried it for six months. Um, and then I think over like three to six months, I started not enjoying work as much and I was burning out. Um, and it was crazy to me because I loved this company. I was like so happy doing the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I think I realized that oh, I, I really miss being on the tools and actually building products and features for people. But I was also thinking like, is it because I am not good enough or, you know, am I just not like not mentally strong enough for this role? So I was thinking like, okay, Part of me knows that I like building products, but part of me is like, maybe I can just continue going on and I can, and I could grow to love this role and I could actually grow to become a head of product. Mm. I thought like maybe I just wasn't, you know, mature enough or all that kind of stuff. Cause I know like when I was talking to a lot of other head of product mentors, a lot of them had similar issues to me. And so I was like, okay, maybe I can just walk, like work through it. But I think, Eventually, I was just so burnt out and I actually had a taste of like actually delivering a feature again. I just felt so much joy. And I also talked to a lot of people that made that transition, like Sharif, you know, obviously made that transition, which is like Rachel's manager at Atlassian. Um, also had a lot of great people at Safety Culture that also chatted with me through the process. And I think it all comes down to, you know, day to day, how can I sort of be happy? Um, and if I take title and money and progression out of the, you know, things I actually don't really care about if I really think about it. But I know that, you know, my parents would care about it. People on LinkedIn would care about it. 
if I take all of that away, I just want to be in a job where I am building things all the time. And in order to do that, I had to step down, at least for that. Like, you know, a head of product is meant to be building culture, processes, and all those things that even speaking about it, I don't love. So yeah, I think it ended up being a pretty simple decision, but I do think the process actually took about like three to six months of really trying to delineate, like, am I doing this because, you know, I find it hard or am I, do I want to be, you know, PM again because I like it or I'm like running away? I think that was Mm -hmm. the biggest thing. Like, am I just running away from a job? Yeah. Sometimes there is, sometimes there is power in just leaving something that does not make you happy because it's your choice. It's your life. And a lot of people are, may actually look at you and think, oh, she's not doing it because she couldn't cop it. And that was the same with consulting for me where I, I was like, I don't like this. I don't want to do it. And a part of my mind was like, is it because I'm just not hardworking enough or all, all these people just have like a better drive or are able to cop it way better than me and they're resilient and whatever it is. Oh, totally. And you, you get some people even saying that, especially when you share your story on social media and people don't know you. But then it is so important to just be like, who cares? You know, I don't want to do it. It doesn't matter if it's, I can't copy it or whatever it is. It's just, I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to. Yeah. Like what are you doing it for at the end of the day? Right. Like in your career, you have so many years to work, but work is still the majority of your week. So if you're not enjoying it and you know, if you don't, if you're, and you actually have passions as well, Hmm. why not pursue them? You don't have to prove yourself to somebody else, basically. Exactly. exactly. But it is important to prove yourself to yourself. (laughs) Totally. Like, I think you should be proud of what you've done. And because I think if you think about what regret looks like to you in the future, for me personally, it would be like, I have passions around game design, um, other parts of like design and art. And I remember I gave up that dream as a kid because I wasn't the best, you know, like who, who, but then, you know, think about it now, like, when are you ever the best at anything? But, Especially when you start. Right, exactly. And I've just never really persevered in anything. I've always chosen things that I was naturally talented at. Yeah. Um, and so next year I was hoping, you know, if I think about what I'm going to regret in the future not doing, it would be to try pursue something. And I'm sort of also excited by the fact that I might just be a beginner again. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make because you can struggle a little bit with these sorts of decisions around Am I leaving it because I actually don't want to do it? And then the flip side of that is sometimes it it is the question of, am I leaving it because it's hard right now and I just want to run away from it? And mm-hmm. am, am I giving up? And I don't want to encourage people to just give up on things that they're not, you know, in the moment they're struggling with. But it's this thought around, do I actually want to be better at it even though it's hard right now? And if the answer is I don't really care Mm. to be better at it than, yeah, why are you doing it? But if it's hard and you're struggling, but you do want to be better at it, then that's where you you shouldn't give up. You should persevere. A hundred percent. Actually, a good test also. I think one of the things was was when I was interviewing for a lot of different jobs and roles, um, because originally when I was leaving Atlassian, I was like, I don't want to have all of these things that's specifically, you know, um, I found out a lastie, but then I realized every company has that issue. Every job is going to be hard. The core question is like, is it worth it? Like, is this hard work, this mental challenges that you have actually worth it? 
every job is hard, but if you believe it's worth it, then that hard work becomes fulfilling. Mm. Um, back to your journey in the head of product role, mm. I guess. I think it was a classic be someone or do something. Yes. A lot of people actually don't know this, but head of product is not the only path that you need to go down if you are in product management. There's this dual track that we talk about where you either go into kind of the management side of things or you become an individual contributor. And the management path is probably the more well-known one where people become a group product manager and then a head of product and then a CPO. And at those levels, you're often doing more managerial things of looking after a team of people, ensuring that they're growing and those sorts of things. Whereas when you go down the individual contributor path, it's it's more around you focus on the product itself. You're still building things and experiences or like, you know, maybe you're getting more into the strategy side of it. But yeah, I, I think it, it seemed that people may look at it and be like, oh, Jenny went from head of product to being a principal product manager. Yeah, demoted. Yeah, they're like, oh, sh- yeah, she went down. But that's not actually the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also a pretty new thing in tech like I think in other industries it does seem like a promotion like demotion sorry like less pay and all that kind of stuff but as Rachel said there are I think the cool thing about tech and especially product management there's like two paths you can either be a manager and I think one thing to be really like that's really important about being a manager is like you kind of are now focused on people skills and managerial skills and the reality is you're never going to be as good as your reports on the product skills anymore because you're not practicing it anymore. And so for me, I was like, I one interesting um, exercise I actually did from like the design of everyday things is like Odyssey planning. And so it essentially tells you to draw out your path based on what your trajectory is now and draw out like different versions of what your life could be if you made certain decisions Um, and then you can like rank it based on how much you like it and how realistic it is so Mm -hmm. I drew out two paths one was the management path I stay as head of product I become CPO eventually I become a CEO of a bigger and bigger company that wasn't really like when I drew it out like that and you draw out what your trajectory is going to be if you stayed it just wasn't very appealing to me I just didn't want to have more people I was like more people problems bigger people problems no thank you no thanks so then I drew out the um individual contributor path the pathway you get to just continue you know building features building more products get better at the craft that was a lot more interesting I could see myself becoming better at the product craft becoming the first product hire make sure the product's really really good and kind of move on to different startups I probably won't get as much money as being a head of product which is the reality because a lot of companies don't like they will always pay more for someone that's managing but that was okay because I you know in tech I'm like I'm still happy with what I'm getting paid it's not yeah uh, it's not peanuts so yeah classic be someone do something be someone being the whole you know I'm going to be a CEO in the future or a CPO and people recognize that kind of title whereas it's really what you said around being able to do something is you know, getting to still focus on those things that you are passionate about when it comes to product craft and building the experience and all those sorts of things, yeah. which may not be rec- as recognized in a title today, yeah. but you know, it's what you enjoy doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you, if you are someone that needs external validation, like throughout that process, I needed some, right? I needed to make sure no one thought I was crazy for doing this. And I remember just talking to 
a lot of close mentors, like people I did value. It was interesting. I had a group of mentors. There was one that was really against it, like super against it. Um, thought I was making the dumbest decision ever. And then there's the other two um, that was just like, you know, Jenny, if you're happy, then we're happy and we support you in any way. And there are always going to be people, especially people that you value that might not think it's a good idea. But at the end of the day, like, I'm like, there are still people that I value that I really respect and they validated my decision. And there's something really nice about that. Cause not every, if you think about the broad people, everyone's going to be like, that's a dumb idea, Jenny. You should think about it a bit more. It's hard though. Like how do you overcome that where, you know, people are disagreeing with your choices, but you are choosing to do something you're passionate in. Yeah. Well, I think it's like a litmus test, right? Like when that person told me they disagree with me, I just didn't like that feeling. And I was like, "Mm." I like, I felt bad initially. And I was like, do I still want to stick with my decision? Like in my heart? Yes. Like, like if, if you're not sure, you probably need to do more thinking. It just means that I think if there are people telling you something and you don't agree with it, just use it as a data point mm-hmm. on how your heart or what you you know how you're feeling. There's no right or wrong with any of these things. So getting feedback's not bad. Mm. It's if anything, just treat it as a data point on you know how your feelings are and what your what you you feel is the right decision for you. Mm. And it's a real strength or a skill to practice your introspection and reflect on what actually matters to you and the things that you value outside of your career as well I think because um, that's probably the place where people struggle most with this whole whole ego is the enemy concept is the progression in their career and I, uh, I remember last year I actually was talking to a work coach yeah so I was I was just very lost in life and I was like I need to talk to someone who is a professional so I can you know talk through my thinking and my perfectionism and anxiety and everything and in our first session she actually made me cry and not in a bad way though because it was it hits so deep yeah where I was talking about how you know I'm fueled by external validation achievements and that sort of thing really drive me forwards and then um, she asked me you know think about if you strip back all of your achievements from your life then who are you as a person and I was like I don't know I was legit like I'm nobody yeah no I I mean like it's it's hard though because like in high school you know you're just focusing on getting good grades in uni you're focusing on getting good good grades (laughs) And then at work, you're also just trying to like, you're trying to translate that and trying to get, be good at work. And so I don't, I think not many people have the time to actually explore who they are. I didn't. I also attached my identity to work for the longest Mm -hmm. time. And it's only like literally like last year or this year where I'm like, you know what? Work's not going to be number one for me. I'm going to explore my hobbies. So Mm. no, I I totally get that. But it's, it's a, it's not an easy question to listen, like to hear. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you you know who you are outside of work a bit more now? Uh, I think I've been working on it. And part of it is figuring out what your values are. So through the value-based exercises, I think you've done the same thing before. Um, And also I have definitely been splitting more of my time now and not putting everything into work, but trying to explore hobbies outside of work. Like podcasting or creating content or sewing and all those sorts of things yeah do you also feel that 
when you talk to friends outside of your like tech and like achievement bubble, like your business bubble, you feel, because an interesting thing for me is like, I have like tech friends where my achievements are very visible, but Mm. I also have high school friends that are like teachers and all that kind of stuff. And I remember their speech for me at, um, I think one one person made a comment where they're like, I didn't realize you were so impressive. (laughs) And I'm like, good yeah because like then that's just me it's they know me not for my achievements they know me as is like a very clumsy person they know me like completely differently yeah and so i find those kind of friends super valuable because they remind me of who i am yeah like in Oztag community, no one really talks about work at all. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know where I work or what I do, um, which is definitely refreshing from a career perspective. But then I still do find there's a bit of that ego that plays into what you guys care about commonly is how good you are at Oztag. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> so true. that becomes the achievement thing. Same same thing with Badminton. Badminton? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Is it bad though to want to be somebody? Um. No, if that's your values. Because I have friends like that and I don't think that's right or wrong. Like I remember one of my friends, like they had a strong belief that like who they are are how people perceive you. And if that's like the school of thought that you follow, that's totally fine. It just doesn't make me happy. Mm. Um, That being said, I think maybe, I think you have to like do some deep thinking to want to be someone and be okay with that. Mm. Because in the book, when we talked about it, sometimes... The title itself, Ego is the Enemy, it makes you think that wanting to be somebody is a negative thing. But when they talk through it in the book, I think they do make it clear that it's not necessarily one is better than the other. It's just, it's basically how, if you reflect on yourself and what you want, are you okay? And are you doing the things that you enjoy, which still enable you to be somebody? Because for a lot of people, those things tend to be in misalignment. Yeah, and that's, that's where it tends to be, you know, when you do something, you'll probably feel more satisfied in your life. And if it also aligns to be someone, like, you know, like Hollywood stars, right? They want to be someone, but they get to do it while doing something that they love. Yeah. So I think that is great alignment. And that's very, you know, that's not a bad thing at all. But yeah, I think both you and I probably struggle with it because in Asian culture and all that kind of stuff, to be someone is like to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, if you don't want to do that, then that's really tough because you have to fight that mental battle because no one ever wants you to be a designer or be an artist or be creative. <laughs> like no one, I guess Asian society doesn't value that sort of stuff. So that can be very challenging. Yeah. Um, all comes down to what we've been saying around what other people expect you to be and that is the part that can be most draining in your life is when you over-index too much on how other people will perceive you because of the things that you are doing. And this then reminds me of what I was going to say (laughs) about my Oztag story, which is I'm going to be very vulnerable here and say I'm someone who struggles with making friends really quickly because I'm an introvert, I'm very shy, and I get a lot of social anxiety when it comes to meeting new people. So it takes a very long time to feel like I'm part of that friendship group. And so the thing that kind of was draining for me in TAG was not career-related, but it was actually how I got into other people's teams. (laughs) So into rep teams or social teams, I used to think, man, I need to 
be somebody. I need to be the best in tag or I need to be so good that people want me in their teams. And that's why they'll ask me to play with them. Like that was something I kept in the back of my head all the time to get better so that people would start including me. When in reality, you know, a lot of the times with these social games, people don't really care. They just want to play with their friends or yeah. people they have relationships with. But I, I don't know. It was this like whole achiever, be somebody kind of thing where I was like, if I'm so good that, you know, I would be such a value add to the team, then maybe they'd ask me even if we're not the closest of friends yet. So it was like I was compensating for something yeah. else. Yeah, I think it's interesting though, like in sports, like I totally get where you're coming from, right? It's interesting because even in badminton, if you're really good at a sport, but you're not a fun person to play with, like if you don't build those relationships with people, people don't want to play with you anyway. Yeah. So no, I think it's a good point because I think logically people do, you know, you think if you're good, then you would get something, but that's also like ego talking as well, right? Yeah. Which is like, I'm good. So why doesn't anyone want me? And then if you think about it from a logical sense, well, like to your point, it's a social sport. So people just want to have fun. Yeah. Um, they want to play with their friends. Yeah. And then in a day, I'm like, as long as I'm having fun and I think I'm improving, like that's it. That's why I think focusing on what you can control. Mm. And like, that's just like enjoying the game. Like no matter what kind of team you get to play on as well. Yeah. Having a good attitude, being the sort of person other people want to play with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And since you are going on leave next year for how long? Uh, hopefully a year. So exciting. What would you want to do? What are you planning on doing? The way that I kind of planned next year was like, okay, I'm going to have kids in like when I'm 30, 31, 32, whatever, right? What would I want to do? I would really regret it if I didn't spend some time like creating something. So I think next year I really do want to put my heart into it. I think people, especially me, um, don't start something because they want to start something good. For me, I'm just going to do as many things as possible yeah. and learn what I like. So breadth over quality, quantity over quality, which is very um, opposite of what they say and just learn a lot of different skills. So my first six months will be like trying 3D art, trying development, trying illustration, try to do one project per week. Good thing about product management is they teach you scope. So I'm like, scope it small, do all these random skills. The last six months, I'm actually going to like double down on something that I intrinsically enjoy and I actually enjoy the process of and just ship things and not actually care about whether it's making money or if it's successful mm. and any of that. So we'll see how that goes and just taking a bit of a break from product management and tech and just see if that is the career I still want. And, you know, the answer could still be yes. It's just that you don't, when you're working all the time, you never get a chance to reflect on actually, is that what you want? Because yeah. you're, you can't reflect while being in the process every single day. You know, there's so much random external validation, so much noise. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's my aim. That sounds like a dream. Like that yeah. sounds like such an ideal year. I'm sure the the thoughts crossed your mind around, you know, you take taking a year off slows down your career path because, you know, you're taking a year out of it. But what you are doing is actually investing the time to build your own skill set and work yeah. on yourself and find out the things that are really going to make you happy and set you up for a longer term future. Yeah, exactly. And I think I've also gotten good at two things, which is not caring about title, mm. not caring about salary so much I think I have a minimum and when people compliment me I try to like 
I, I try to have an allergic reaction, be like, whatever. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't listen to that. I mean, I appreciate the compliment, and I yeah. really do feel thankful for it. But trying to not like let it get to me. So I think it's a hard decision to make. I think the main, dis- actually, the hardest part about that is not actually so much about slowing your career, but actually slowing my money. Because you want to have a family. Yeah. I want to have a family. I want to buy a house for my parents. Like yeah. all of those things I do want. And, you know, my job pays well, but I only want to do it in a way that makes me happy. Last question. I'm going to hit you with a deep one. Oh God. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life to me? Well, okay. I am someone that loves life. I'm like, I'm enamored by the world. I think there is just so much to experience, to explore. I think Humans are so interesting. Cultures are so interesting. There's so much food as a result (laughs) of culture. So I really just want to enjoy life and like take in everything that life has to offer. And I think that's also why like I believe, I so strongly believe in like finding work that you find fulfilling because life is very short. And I also don't think trying different jobs at the expense of career progression is a bad thing because that means I get to explore more of life. So it's not really like a deep meaning of life, but I think this is my approach to life, which is like, I really want to try as many things as I can. Um, and I'm intentful about, you know, what I do next and the hobbies that I have. I think it is deep though. Yeah. It is the whole notion of life is whatever you want to do. It's not what, there's no set path. There's everyone's in the rat race. They're trying to get to the next promo or whatever it is. And especially in our 20s, we're trying to get there quickly. But then at the end of it, you're going to look back and be like, well, what did I do all of that for? What's the point? There's a bit of, um, what's it called? Is it Marxist or is it nihilist? Nihilism. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, whatever that is. It's a bit of, you know, we're all going to die at the end of it anyway. So what's the point of life? Yeah. But the positive spin on that is if it doesn't matter in the end, then optimize your life for doing the things that you enjoy and being in that moment and slowing down as well. Because there's so many times where I feel like I'm rushing to get to the next thing or wait for the next thing that's coming. And then when you get to it, you look back and those past six months that you just spend waiting to it, you're like, oh, what did I do? I just rushed to get here. And Mm. I didn't enjoy the exact moment when I was on that journey. Yeah. And I think like if you think about it, just like in a in a day as well, like you can improve your life just by appreciating all the small moments even in a day. So yeah, I think I think I don't know, life is just there's so many things for you to do, explore. I always feel like it's a waste for me to be burnt out. So I've always been so on top of like getting myself out of those situations. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Remember to tune in every Wednesday for the sugar, the spice, and everything that's nice in life with the Bliss Bakery. We will see you all next time. Bye. Bye.